years and dismantle the Soviet Union itself, absorbing all its powers into his own Russian Republic. While claiming to be undoing the old regime, Yeltsin overthrew the new democratic Soviet government of 1989 through 1991. In late 1993, facing strong popular resistance to his harsh free market policies, Yeltsin went further. He forcibly disbanded the Russian parliament and every other elected representative body in the country, including municipal and regional councils. He abolished Russia's constitutional court and launched an armed attack upon the parliamentary building, killing an estimated 2,000 resistors and demonstrators. Thousands more were jailed without charges or a trial, and hundreds of elected officials were placed under investigation. Yeltsin banned labor unions from all political activities, suppressed dozens of publications, exercised monopoly control over all broadcast media, and permanently outlawed 15 political parties. He unilaterally scrapped the Constitution and presented the public with a new one that gave the president nearly absolute power over policy while reducing the democratically elected parliament to virtual impotence. For these crimes, he was hailed as a defender of democracy by U.S. leaders and media. What they most liked about Yeltsin was that he never wavered in his support for privatization. Yeltsin, the Democrat, twice suspended publication of the Communist Party newspaper Pravda. He charged an exorbitant rent for the use of its own facilities. Then, in March 1992, he confiscated the paper's 12-story building and its press and turned full ownership over to Rusikaye Gazeta, a government pro-Yeltsin newspaper. Yeltsin's elite Oman troops repeatedly attacked leftist demonstrators and pickets in Moscow and other Russian cities. Parliamentary Deputy Andrei Aydzerdis, an independent, and Deputy Valentin Martemyanov, a communist, who both vigorously opposed the Yeltsin government, were victims of political assassination. In 1994, journalist Dmitry Kolodov, who was probing corruption in high places, also was assassinated. In 1996, Yeltsin won re-election as president, beating out a serious challenge from a communist rival. His campaign was assisted by teams of U.S. electoral advisors who used sophisticated polling techniques and focus groups. Yeltsin also benefited from multi-million dollar donations from U.S. sources and a $10 billion aid package from the International Monetary Fund and World Bank. Equally important for victory was the crooked counting of ballots, as cursorily reported in one ABC late evening news story in July 1996. Yeltsin exercised monopoly control over Russia's television networks, enjoying campaign coverage that amounted to nonstop promotionals. In contrast, opposition candidates were reduced to non-persons, given only fleeting exposure, if that. Yeltsin's re-election was hailed in the West as a victory for democracy. In fact, it was a victory for private capital and monopoly media, which is not synonymous with democracy, though often treated as such by U.S. leaders and opinion makers. Yeltsin's commitment is to capitalism, not democracy. In March 1996, 
several months before the election when polls showed him trailing the communist candidate Gennady Zyuganov, Yeltsin ordered decrees drawn up that would have canceled the election, closed down parliament, and banned the communist party. But he was dissuaded by advisors who feared the measures might incite too much resistance. Though he decided not to call off the election, Yeltsin was never committed to turning over the government to a communist if he lost. During the 1996 campaign, Yeltsin and his associates repeatedly announced that a communist victory would bring civil war. In effect, they were voicing their willingness to discard democracy and resort to force and violence if the election did not go their way. Nor was it taken as an idle threat. At one point, surveys showed that about half the population believed that civil war would result if the communists won. Through all of this, Yeltsin received vigorous support from the White House and the U.S. media. An editorial in The Nation, June 17, 1996, asked, What if a popularly elected communist president in Russia had pursued Yeltsin's harsh policies of privatization, plunging his country into poverty, turning over most of its richest assets to a small segment of previous communist officials, suppressing dissident elements, using tanks to disband a popularly elected parliament that opposed his policies, rewriting the constitution to give himself almost dictatorial power and doing all the other things Yeltsin has done. Would U.S. leaders enthusiastically devote themselves to the re-election of this communist president and remain all but silent about his transgressions? The question is posed rhetorically. The nation editorial presumes that the answer is no. In fact, I would respond, yes, of course. U.S. leaders would have no trouble supporting this communist president, for he would be communist in name only. In actual deed, he would be a devoted agent of capitalist restoration. One need only look at how successive administrations in Washington have cultivated friendly relations with the present communist leaders in China, overlooking and even explaining away their transgressions. As China's leaders open their country to private investment and growing economic inequality, they offer up a dispossessed labor force ready to work double-digit hours for subsistence pay at enormous profit for the multinationals. U.S. politico-economic leaders know what they are doing, even if some editorial writers in this country do not. Their eye is on the money, not the color of the vessel it comes in. Since the overthrow of communism, Free market right-wing forces in the various Eastern European countries enjoyed significant financial and organizational assistance from U.S.-financed agencies such as the National Endowment for Democracy, the AFL-CIO's Free Trade Union Institute, a group intimately linked to the CIA, and the Free Congress Foundation, an organization with an anti-communist and conservative religious ideology. Communists and other Marxists endured political repression throughout Eastern Europe. In East Germany, the Party of Democratic Socialism had its property and offices, paid for by party members, seized in an attempt to bankrupt it. In Latvia, the communist activist Alfreds Rubiks, who protested the inequities of free market reform, has been kept in prison for years without benefit of trial. In Lithuania, Communist leaders were tortured and then imprisoned for long durations. Georgia's anti-communist president, 
Zvayad Gamaskurdia, incarcerated opponents from some 70 political groups without granting them a trial. Estonia held free elections in which 42% of the population was prohibited from voting because of their Russian, Ukrainian, or Belarusian antecedents. Russians and other minorities were excluded from many jobs and faced discrimination in housing and schools. Latvia also disfranchised Russians and other non-Latvian nationals, many of whom had lived in the country for almost a half-century. So much for the flowering of democracy. One-Way Democracy More important than democratic rule was free market reform, a codeword for capitalist restoration. As long as democracy could be used to destabilize one-party communist rule, it was championed by the forces of reaction. But when democracy worked against free market restoration, the outcome was less tolerated. In 1990, in Bulgaria, capitalist restoration did not go according to plan. Despite generous financial and organizational assistance from U.S. sources, including the Free Congress Foundation, the Bulgarian conservatives ended up a poor second to the communists in what Western European observers judged to be a fair and open election. What followed was a coordinated series of strikes, demonstrations, economic pressure, acts of sabotage, and other disruptions reminiscent of CIA-orchestrated campaigns against left governments in Chile, Jamaica, Nicaragua, and British Guyana. Within five months, the free market oppositionists forced the democratically elected communist government to resign. Bulgarian communists complained that the U.S. had violated democratic principles in working against freely elected officials. The same pattern emerged in Albania, where the democratically elected communist government won an overwhelming victory at the polls, only to face demonstrations, a general strike, economic pressure from abroad, and campaigns of disruption financed by the National Endowment for Democracy and other U.S. sources. After two months, the communist government collapsed. Once the right took power, a new law was passed denying Albanian communists and other opponents of capitalist restoration the right to vote or otherwise participate in political activities. As a reward for having extended democratic rights to all citizens, the Albanian communists and all former state employees and judges were stripped of their civil rights. In the 1996 Albanian elections, the socialists and other opposition parties, who had been predicted to do well, withdrew from the election hours before the polls closed in protest of the blatantly rigged vote. Election monitors from the European Union and the United States said they witnessed numerous instances of police intimidation and the stuffing of ballot boxes. The Socialist Party had its final campaign rally banned, and a number of prominent leaders barred from running for office because of their past communist affiliations. When the Socialists and their allies tried to hold protest rallies, they were attacked by Albanian security forces, who beat and severely injured dozens of demonstrators. Openly anti-Semitic groups, crypto-fascist parties, and hate campaigns surfaced in Russia, Poland, Hungary, Ukraine, Belarus, Czechoslovakia, and Romania. 
Museums that commemorated the heroic anti-fascist resistance were closed down, and monuments to the struggle against Nazism were dismantled. In countries like Lithuania, former Nazi war criminals were exonerated, some even compensated for the years they had spent in jail. Jewish cemeteries were desecrated, and xenophobic attacks against foreigners of darker hue increased. With the communists no longer around, Jews and foreigners were blamed for low crop prices, inflation, crime, and other social ills. On June 11, 1995, Lech Walesa's personal pastor, Father Henrik Jankowski, declared during a mass in Warsaw that the Star of David is implicated in the swastika as well as in the hammer and sickle, and that the diabolical aggressiveness of the Jews was responsible for the emergence of communism and for World War II. The priest added that Poles should not tolerate governments made up of people who are tied to Jewish money. Valenza, who was present during the sermon, declared that his friend Jankowski was not an anti-Semite, but simply misinterpreted. Rather than retracting his comments, Jankowski spewed forth the same bile in a subsequent television interview. At about that time, placards that read, Jews to the gas and Down with the Jewish Communist Conspiracy, were visible at a Polish solidarity demonstration of 10,000 in Warsaw, earning not a censorious word from church or state authorities. The economic policies of the fascist Pinochet regime in Chile were openly admired by the newly installed capitalist government in Hungary. In 1991, leading political figures and economists from the soon-to-be-abolished USSR attended a seminar on Chilean economics in Santiago and enjoyed a cordial meeting with mass murderer General Pinochet. The Chilean dictator also was accorded a friendly interview in Literaturnaya Gazeta, a major Russian publication. Yeltsin's former security chief, Alexander Levit, is a Pinochet admirer. Instead of being transformed into capitalist states, some communist nations were entirely obliterated as political entities. Besides the obvious example of the Soviet Union, there is the German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, which was absorbed into the Federal Republic of Germany. South Yemen was militarily attacked and crushed by North Yemen. Ethiopia was occupied by Tigrayan and Eritrean forces that imprisoned large numbers of Ethiopians without trial, expropriated Ethiopian property, suppressed Ethiopian education, business, and news media, and imposed a systematic enforcement of tribalism in political organization and education. A systematic enforcement of tribalist political organization might well describe Yugoslavia's fate, a nation that was fragmented by force of arms into a number of small, conservative republics under the suzerainty of the Western powers. With that dismemberment came a series of wars, repressions, and atrocities committed by all contending sides. One of Yugoslavia's first breakaway republics was Croatia, which in 1990 was taken over by a rightist coterie, including some former Nazi collaborators backed by the armed might of the proto-fascist National Guard Corps, under a constitution that relegated Serbs, Jews, Gypsies, and Muslims to second-class status. Serbs were driven from the civil service and police, evicted from their homes, 
had their businesses taken from them, and were subjected to special property taxes. Serbian newspapers in Croatia were suppressed. Many Serbs were forced from the land they had inhabited for three centuries. Still, Croatia was hailed by its Western backers as a newborn democracy. In 1996, Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko, a self-professed admirer of Adolf Hitler's organizational skills, shut down the independent newspapers and radio stations and decreed the opposition parliament defunct. Lukashenko was awarded absolute power in a referendum that claimed an inflated turnout, with no one knowing how many ballots were printed or how they were counted. Some opposition leaders fled for their lives. Once a rich Soviet republic that produced tractors and TVs, Belarus is now a basket case, with a third of the population living in deep poverty. Must we adore Vaclav Havel? No figure among the capitalist restorationists in the East has won more adulation from U.S. officials, media pundits, and academics than Vaclav Havel, a playwright who became the first president of post-communist Czechoslovakia and later president of the Czech Republic. The many left-leaning people who also admire Havel seem to have overlooked some things about him, his reactionary religious obscurantism, his undemocratic suppression of leftist opponents, and his profound dedication to economic inequality and an unrestrained free-market capitalism. Raised by governesses and chauffeurs in a wealthy and fervently anti-communist family, Havel denounced democracy's cult of objectivity and statistical average and the idea that rational, collective social efforts should be applied to solving the environmental crisis. He called for a new breed of political leader who would rely less on rational cognitive thinking, show humility in the face of the mysterious order of being, and trust in his own subjectivity as his principal link with the subjectivity of the world. Apparently, this new breed of leader would be a superior elitist cogitator, not unlike Plato's philosopher king, endowed with a sense of transcendental responsibility and archetypal wisdom. Havel never explained how this transcendent archetypal wisdom would translate into actual policy decisions, and for whose benefit, at whose expense. Havel called for efforts to preserve the Christian family in the Christian nation, presenting himself as a man of peace, and stating that he would never sell arms to oppressive regimes, he sold weapons to the Philippines and the fascist regime in Thailand. In June 1994, General Pinochet, the man who butchered Chilean democracy, was reported to be arm-shopping in Czechoslovakia with no audible objections from Havel. Havel joined wholeheartedly in George Bush's Gulf War, an enterprise that killed over 100,000 Iraqi civilians. In 1991, along with other Eastern European pro-capitalist leaders, Havel voted with the United States to condemn human rights violations in Cuba but he has never uttered a word of condemnation of rights violations in El Salvador, Colombia, Indonesia, or any other U.S. client state. In 1992, while president of Czechoslovakia, Havel, the great Democrat, demanded that parliament be suspended and he be allowed to rule by edict 
the better to ram through free market reforms. That same year, he signed a law that made the advocacy of communism a felony with a penalty of up to eight years imprisonment. He claimed the Czech Constitution required him to sign it. In fact, as he knew, the law violated the Charter of Human Rights, which is incorporated into the Czech Constitution. In any case, it did not require his signature to become law. In 1995, he supported and signed another undemocratic law barring communists and former communists from employment in public agencies. The propagation of anti-communism has remained a top priority for Havel. He led a frantic international campaign to keep in operation two U.S.-financed Cold War radio stations, Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty, so they could continue saturating Eastern Europe with their anti-communist propaganda. Under Havel's government, a law was passed making it a crime to propagate national, religious, and class hatred. In effect, criticisms of big-moneyed interests were now illegal, being unjustifiably lumped with ethnic and religious bigotry. Havel's government warned labor unions not to involve themselves in politics. Some militant unions had their property taken from them and handed over to compliant company unions. In 1995, Havel announced that the revolution against communism would not be complete until everything was privatized. Havel's government liquidated the properties of the Socialist Union of Youth, which included campsites, recreation halls, and cultural and scientific facilities for children, putting the properties under the management of five joint stock companies at the expense of the youth who were left to roam the streets. Under Czech privatization and restitution programs, factories, shops, estates, homes, and much of the public land was sold at bargain prices to foreign and domestic capitalists. In the Czech and Slovak republics, former aristocrats or their heirs were being given back all the lands their families had held before 1918 under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, dispossessing the previous occupants and sending many of them into destitution. Havel himself took personal ownership of public properties that had belonged to his family 40 years before. While presenting himself as a man dedicated to doing good for others, he did well for himself. For these reasons, some of us do not have warm, fuzzy feelings toward Václav Havel. Colonizing the East Once the capitalist restorationists in Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union took state power, they worked hard to make sure that the new order of corporate plunder, individual greed, low wages, mindless pop culture, and limited electoral democracy would take hold. They set about dismantling public ownership of production and the entire network of social programs that once served the public. They integrated the erstwhile communist countries into the global capitalist system by expropriating their land, labor, natural resources, and markets, swiftly transforming them into impoverished third-world nations. All this was hailed in the U.S. corporate-owned press as a great advance for humanity. The former communist nations are being recolonized by Western capital. Most of their foreign trade is now controlled by multinational corporations. Like third-world countries, they are increasingly deprived of each other's markets. 
the once heavy and mutually beneficial commerce between them has been reduced to a trickle, as their economies get tied into the investment and extractive needs of global capitalism. Instead of mutual development, they are now experiencing the maldevelopment imposed by global monopoly capital. Multinational corporations are moving into Russia to exploit vast oil and natural gas reserves and rich mineral deposits at great profit to themselves and with little benefit to the Russian people. Over the protests of U.S. and Russian environmentalists, U.S. timber interests, with financial support from a venture fund sponsored by the Pentagon, are preparing to clear-cut the Siberian wilderness, a region that holds one-fifth of the planet's forests and is the habitat of many rare species. All aid to the former communist countries is funneled into the private sector. As noted in The Guardian, the hundreds of millions of dollars spawned by Western aid programs have mainly benefited the Western companies, which headed east to board the aid gravy train. When Romania inaugurated an over-the-counter market for trading privatization shares, the $20 million in startup costs were largely covered by the U.S. Agency for International Development. In 1996, the International Monetary Fund extended a $10.2 billion loan to Russia, with terms calling for the privatization of agriculture and other state-owned assets and the elimination of human service and fuel subsidies. U.S. aid is used to help private investors buy public properties and extract publicly owned raw materials from Eastern European countries under the most favorable investment conditions. With the advent of private investment in the East, production did not grow as promised, but dropped drastically. Hundreds of the more attractive and solvent state enterprises have been privatized, often given away at token prices to foreign investors while other state firms are decapitalized or driven into bankruptcy. Between 1989 and 1995, in what is now the Czech Republic, nearly 80% of all enterprises were privatized, and industrial production shrank by two-thirds. Privatization in Poland caused production to shrink one-third between 1989 and 1992. Vast electronic and high-tech complexes in East Germany employing tens of thousands of workers, have been taken over by giant West German firms and then closed down. Under privatization, much of the former Soviet Union's scientific and technical infrastructure is disintegrating, along with its physical plants. Since going private, Zil, the huge Moscow plant, saw its production of trucks slump from 150,000 to 13,000 a year, with almost 40% of the workforce laid off. In April 1996, the remaining workers petitioned the Russian government to take back control of Zil. In the past, Zil workers and their relatives had unshakably safe jobs at the factory. They lived in apartments and attended schools provided by Zil. As babies, they spent their days at the Zil daycare center, and when ill, they were attended to by Zil doctors. I was raised in a country that cared about its workers, said one machinist, who now was sorry he had opposed that system. In Macedonia, one of the breakaway republics of Yugoslavia, a labor representative noted, Privatization seems to mean the destruction of our companies. 
Macedonians seemed more troubled by free market economic hardships than by the much publicized ethnic rivalries. They complained about how work has taken over their lives. One has no time to care about others. There's no time even for oneself, only time for making money. Agricultural output of grain, corn, livestock, and other products plummeted in the former communist countries as thousands of cooperative farms were forcibly broken up. The new private farmers have small plots, often cannot get loans, seeds, fertilizer, or machinery, and are rapidly losing their holdings or reverting to subsistence farming. Hungary's agricultural cooperatives had been one sector of the socialist economy that performed well, but with privatization, farm output tumbled 40% in 1993. A drastic deterioration in agricultural production occurred in Bulgaria, once considered the breadbasket of Eastern Europe, causing severe bread shortages by 1996. Bulgaria was also suffering from a 20% monthly inflation and was sinking into that familiar cycle of foreign debt, cutting back on services to qualify for IMF loans, borrowing to pay off past borrowing. The Bulgarian government must impose more free market austerity measures to get vital international loans to repay portions of the $9.4 billion foreign debt. In 1992, the Lithuanian government decreed that former owners and their descendants could reclaim property confiscated during the socialist era. As a result, tens of thousands of farming families, about 70% of the rural population, were evicted from land they had worked for over a half-century, destroying the country's agricultural base in the process. Much production in East Germany was dismantled to prevent competition with West German firms. This was especially evident when collective agriculture was broken up to protect the heavily subsidized and less productive private farms of West Germany. Without making compensation, West German capitalists grabbed almost all the socialized property in the GDR, including factories, mills, farms, apartments, and other real estate, and the medical care system, assets worth about $2 trillion, in what has amounted to the largest expropriation of public wealth by private capital in European history. The end result of all this free market privatization in East Germany is that rents, once 5% of one's income, have climbed to as much as two-thirds. Likewise, the costs of transportation, childcare, healthcare, and higher education have soared beyond the reach of many. East Germans of various political stripes have a number of complaints. A. The net money flow has been east to west in what amounts to a colonization of the east. B. The free market is a myth. The West German economy is heavily subsidized and fully regulated, but against the interests of the East. C. West German police are much more brutal than were the East German police. D. If West Germany had denazified anywhere near as thoroughly as it forced the East to desocialize, it would be a totally different country. On that last point, it should be noted that German officials are bringing criminal charges against those who collaborated with the GDR of East Germany in any official capacity, including even teachers and minor administrators. Emigres from communist states 
are astonished by the amount of bureaucracy they find in the West. Two Soviet immigrants to Canada complained, independently of each other, that bureaucracy here was even worse than at home. East Germans living in the West were staggered by the flood of complicated forms they had to fill out for taxes, health insurance, life insurance, unemployment compensation, job retraining, rent subsidies, and bank accounts. Furthermore, because of the kind of personal information they had to give, they felt more observed and spied on than they were by the Stasi, the GDR security police. Soviet Jews who emigrated to Israel during the Cold War era experienced a similar disillusionment with the difficulties of life and lack of idealism. The discouraging letters they sent home were considered an important factor in the drop in immigration from the USSR to Israel. With the capitalist restoration in full swing, the peoples of the former communist nations had ample opportunity to learn what life was like in the free market paradise. Their experiences are detailed in the next chapter. Chapter 7. The Free Market Paradise Goes East. 2. Free market propagandists in the former communist countries claimed that, as capital was privatized and accumulated in a few hands, production would be stimulated and prosperity would be at hand. But first, there would be a difficult period to go through. The difficult period is proving to be far more severe and protracted than predicted, and may well be the permanent condition of capitalist restoration. For Vipers and Bloodsuckers In 1990, as the Soviet Union was preparing for its fatal plunge into the free market paradise, Bruce Gelb, head of the United States Information Agency, told a reporter that the Soviets would benefit economically from U.S. business education because the vipers, the bloodsuckers, the middlemen, that's what needs to be rehabilitated in the Soviet Union. That's what makes our kind of country click. Today, the former communist countries and China are clicking away with vipers and bloodsuckers. Thousands of luxury cars have appeared on the streets of Moscow and Prague. Rents and real estate prices have skyrocketed. Numerous stock exchanges have sprung up in China and Eastern Europe, 16 in the former USSR alone. And a new class of investors, speculators, and racketeers are wallowing in wealth. The professed goal is no longer to provide a better life for all citizens, but to maximize the opportunities for individuals to accumulate personal fortunes. More opulence for the few creates more poverty for the many. As one young female journalist in Russia put it, every time someone gets richer, I get poorer. In Russia, the living standard of the average family has fallen almost by half since the market reforms took hold. A report from Hungary makes the same point. While the new rich live in villas with a Mercedes parked in a garage, the number of poor people has been growing. As socialist Vietnam opens itself to foreign investment and the free market, gaps between rich and poor have widened rapidly, and the quality of education and health care for the poor has deteriorated. Prosperity has come only to a privileged few in Vietnam, leading to an emerging class structure that is at odds with the country's professed egalitarian ideals. In the emerging free market paradise of Russia and Eastern Europe, 
price deregulation produced not competitive prices, but prices set by private monopolies, adding to the galloping inflation. Beggars, pimps, dope pushers, and other hustlers ply their trades as never before. And there has been a dramatic rise in unemployment, homelessness, air and water pollution, prostitution, spousal abuse, child abuse, and just about every other social ill. In countries like Russia and Hungary, as widely reported in the U.S. press, the suicide rate has climbed by 50% in a few years. Reductions in fuel service, brought about by rising prices and unpaid bills, have led to a growing number of deaths or serious illnesses among the poor and the elderly during the long winters. In Russia, doctors and nurses in public clinics are now grossly underpaid. Free health clinics are closing. More than ever, hospitals suffer from unsanitary conditions and shortages of disposable syringes, needles, vaccines, and modern equipment. Many hospitals now have no hot water, some no water at all. The deterioration of immunization programs and health standards has allowed polio to make a serious comeback, along with tuberculosis, cholera, diphtheria, dysentery, and sexually transmitted diseases. Drug addiction has risen sharply. Russia's hospitals are struggling to treat increasing numbers of addicts with decreasing levels of funding. There has been a decline in nutritional levels and a sharp increase in stress and illness. Yet the number of visits to doctors has dropped by half because fees are so costly in the newly privatized health care systems. As a result, many illnesses go undetected and untreated until they become critical. Russian military officials describe the health of conscripts as catastrophic. Within the armed forces, suicides have risen dramatically and deaths from drug overdoses have climbed to 80% in recent years. The overthrow of communism brought a rising infant mortality and soaring death rates in Russia, Bulgaria, Hungary, Latvia, Moldavia, Romania, Ukraine, Mongolia, and East Germany. One-third of Russian men never lived to 60 years of age. In 1992, Russia's birth rate fell below its death rate for the first time since World War II. In 1992 and 1993, East Germans buried two people for every baby born. The death rate rose nearly 20% for East German women in their late 30s, and nearly 30% for men of the same age. With the end of subsidized rents, estimates of homelessness in Moscow alone run as high as 300,000. The loss of resident permits deprives the homeless of medical care and other state benefits, such as they are. Dressed in rags and victimized by both mobsters and government militia, thousands of indigents die of cold and hunger on the streets of various cities. In Romania, thousands of homeless children live in sewers and train stations, sniffing glued and numb their hunger, begging and falling prey to various predators. In Mongolia, hundreds of homeless children live in the sewers of Usan Batar. Before 1990, Mongolia was a prosperous nation that had benefited from Soviet and East European financial assistance and technical aid. Its new industrial centers produced leather goods, woolen products, textiles, cement, meat, grain, and timber. The communist era dramatically improved the quality of life of the people, achieving commendable levels of social development 
through state-sponsored social welfare measures, but free market privatization and deindustrialization has brought unemployment, mass poverty, and widespread malnutrition to Mongolia. Shock therapy for the many. Unemployment rates have risen as high as 30% in countries that once knew full employment under communism. One Polish worker claims that the jobless are pretty much unemployable after age 40. Polish women say economic demise comes earlier for them, since to get a job, as one puts it, you must be young, childless, and have a big bosom. Occupational safety is now almost non-existent, and workplace injuries and deaths have drastically increased. Workers now toil harder and longer for less, often in sweatshop conditions. Teachers, scientists, factory workers, and countless others struggle for months without pay as their employers run out of funds. The waves of strikes and work stoppages in Russia and Eastern Europe are accorded unsympathetic press treatment in those countries. Even in the few remaining countries in which communist governments retain control, such as China, Vietnam, and Cuba, the opening to private investment has contributed to a growing inequality. In Cuba, the dollar economy has brought with it a growth in prostitution, including girls as young as 11 and 12, street beggars, and black market dealings with tourists. In China, there are workers who now put in 12 to 16-hour days for subsistence pay without regularly getting a day off. Those who protest against poor safety and health conditions risk being fired or jailed. The market reforms in China have also brought a return of child labor. I think this is what happens when you have private companies, says Ms. Peng, a young migrant who has doubts about the new China. In private companies, you know, the workers don't have rights. Throughout Eastern Europe, unions have been greatly weakened or broken. Sick leave, maternity leave, paid vacations and other job benefits once taken for granted under communism have been cut or abolished. Worker sanitariums, vacation resorts, health clinics, sports and cultural centers, children's nurseries, daycare centers, and other features that made communist enterprises more than just workplaces have nearly vanished. Rest homes formerly reserved for workers have been privatized and turned into casinos, nightclubs, and restaurants for the nouveau riche. Real income has shrunk by as much as 30 to 40 percent in the ex-communist countries. In 1992 alone, Russia saw its consumer spending drop by 38 percent. By comparison, during the Great Depression, consumer spending in the United States fell 21 percent over four years. In both Poland and Bulgaria, an estimated 70 percent now live below or just above the poverty line. In Russia, it is 75 to 85 percent, with a third of the population barely subsisting in absolute economic desperation. In Hungary, which has received most of the West's investment in Eastern Europe, over one-third of its citizens live in abject poverty, and 70% of the men hold two or more jobs, working up to 14 hours a day, according to the Ministry of Labor. After months of not getting paid, coal miners in far eastern Russia were beginning to starve. By August 1996, 10,000 of them had stopped working simply because they were too weak from hunger. With no coal being extracted, the region's power plants began to shut down. 
threatening an electrical blackout that would further harm the nation's Pacific coastal industry and trade. Eastern Europeans are witnessing scenes that are commonplace enough in the West, but are still wrenching here. The old man rummaging through trash barrels for castaway items, the old woman picking through a box of bones at a meat market in search of one with enough gristle to make a thin soup. With their savings and pensions swallowed up by inflation, elderly pensioners crowd the sidewalks of Moscow, selling articles of their clothing and other pathetic wares, while enduring harassment by police and thugs. A Russian senior citizen refers to this poverty which only a few have escaped, while some have become wildly rich. Crime and Corruption With the socialist ethic giving way to private greed, corruption assumed virulent new forms in the post-communist nations. Officials high and low are on the take, including the police. The Russian security minister calculated that one-third of Russian oil and one-half of Russian nickel shipped out of the country was stolen. Among those enjoying staggering profits from this plunder were Shell Oil and British Petroleum. In April 1992, the chairman of Russia's central bank admitted that at least $20 billion had been illegally taken out of the country and deposited in Western banks. The choice chunks of public real estate are quietly sold off at a fraction of their value in exchange for payoffs to the officials who preside over the sales. Government officials buy goods from private contractors at twice the normal price in exchange for kickbacks. Factory directors sell state-made commodities at low state prices to their own private firms, which those firms then resell at market prices for a vast profit. One member of the Moscow City Council estimated that corruption amounted to hundreds of billions of dollars. If these funds went into state coffers instead of private pockets, we could meet our budget three or four times over. Along with corruption, there is an upsurge in organized crime. Over 100 racket syndicates in Russia now extort tribute from 80% of all enterprises. From 1992 to 1995, as competition for the spoils of reform intensified, 46 of Russia's more prominent businessmen were slain in gangland-style murders. In 1994, there were more than 2,500 contract murders, almost all of them unsolved. Contract murders occur regularly now in Russia, and most go without much notice. Police say they lack the funds, personnel, and crime detection equipment for any real campaign against the mobs. Street crime also has increased sharply. In the former Soviet Union, women and elderly who once felt free to sit in parks late at night now dare not venture out after dark. Since the overthrow of communism in Hungary, thefts and other felonies have nearly tripled, and there has been a 50% increase in homicides. The police force in Prague today is many times greater than it was under communism, when relatively few police were needed. How odd that fewer police were needed in the communist police state than in the free market paradise. In the Republic of Georgia, life has been reduced to a level of violent chaos never imagined under communism. Criminal rings control much of the commerce, and paramilitary groups control most of the criminal rings. No longer able to sell its goods on the Soviet market, but unable to compete on the international market, Georgian industry has experienced a massive decline 
And, as in most eastern countries, the public debt has leaped upward, while real wages have shrunk painfully. Cultural Decay Cultural life has drastically declined in the former communist countries. Theaters are sparsely attended because tickets are now prohibitively expensive. Publicly owned movie industries in countries like Russia, Poland, Czechoslovakia, and the German Democratic Republic, which produced a number of worthwhile films, have been defunded or bought out by Western business interests and now make cartoons, commercials, and music videos. Movie houses have been taken over by corporate chains and offer many of the same Hollywood junk films that we have the freedom to see. Subsidies for the arts and literature have been severely cut. Symphony orchestras have disbanded or taken to playing at block parties and other minor occasions. The communist countries used to produce inexpensive but quality editions of classical and contemporary authors and poets, including ones from Latin America, Asia, and Africa. These have been replaced by second-rate, mass-market publications from the West. During the communist era, three of every five books in the world were produced in the Soviet Union. Today, as the cost of books, periodicals, and newspapers has skyrocketed and education has declined, readership has shrunk almost to third-world levels. Books of a Marxist or otherwise critical left perspective have been removed from bookstores and libraries. In East Germany, the Writers Association reported one instance in which 50,000 tons of books, some brand new, were buried in a dump. The German authorities who disposed of the books apparently did not feel quite free enough to burn them. Education, once free, is now accessible only to those who can afford the costly tuition rates. The curricula have been depoliticized, meaning that a left perspective critical of imperialism and capitalism has been replaced by a conservative one that is supportive or at least uncritical of these forces. Descending upon the unhappy societies of Eastern Europe and Russia are the Hare Krishnas, Mormons, Moonies, Jehovah's Witnesses, Bahais, rightist Christian evangelicals, self-improvement hucksters, instant success peddlers, and other materialistic spiritualist scavengers who prey upon the deprived and the desperate, offering solace in the next world, or the promise of wealth and success in this one. The president of one of Russia's largest construction companies summed it up. All the material well-being that people had, they lost in one hour. There is practically no more free medical care, accessible higher education, no right to a job or rest. The houses of culture, libraries, stadiums, kindergartens and nurseries, pioneer camps, schools, hospitals and stores, are closing. The cost of housing, communal services, and transport are no longer affordable for the majority of families. Facing forced privatization, news and entertainment media have had to find rich owners, corporate advertisers, conservative foundations, or agencies within the newly installed capitalist governments to finance them. Television and radio programs that had a left perspective, including some popular youth shows, have been removed from the air. All media have been purged of leftists and restaffed by people with acceptable ideological orientations. This process of moving toward a pro-capitalist communication monopoly has been described in the Western media as democratization. Billboards and television commercials promoting U.S. cigarettes, automobiles, and other consumer items 
many of them beyond the average pocketbook, now can be seen everywhere. Women and Children Last The overthrow of communism has brought a sharp increase in gender inequality. The new constitution adopted in Russia eliminates provisions that guaranteed women the right to paid maternity leave, job security during pregnancy, prenatal care, and affordable daycare centers. Without the former communist stipulation that women get at least one-third of the seats in any legislature, female political representation has dropped to as low as 5% in some countries. In all communist countries, about 90% of women had jobs in what was a full employment economy. Today, women compose over two-thirds of the unemployed. Those who do work are being channeled into low-pay, unskilled positions. Women are being driven from the professions in disproportionate numbers and are advised against getting professional training. More than 30% of unemployed females are skilled workers and professionals who previously earned higher salaries than the national norm. The loss of maternity benefits and childcare services has created still greater obstacles to female employment. Throughout the Eastern European nations, the legal, financial, and psychological independence that women enjoyed under socialism has been undermined. Divorce, abortion, and birth control are more difficult to obtain. Released from the Soviet yoke, the autonomous region of Ingushetia decriminalized polygamy and made it legal for women to be sold into marriage. Instances of sexual harassment and violence against women have increased sharply. In Russia, the number of women murdered annually, primarily by husbands and boyfriends, skyrocketed from 5,300 to 15,000 in the first three years of the free market paradise. In 1994, an additional 57,000 women were seriously injured in such assaults. These official figures understate the level of violence. The Communist Party committees that used to intervene in cases of domestic abuse no longer exist. Women also are being recruited in unprecedented numbers for the booming sex industry that caters to foreign and domestic businessmen. Unable to find employment in the professions for which they originally were trained, many highly educated Russian and Eastern European women go abroad to work as prostitutes. Women are not the only ones being channeled into the sex market. As reported in Newsweek, September 2, 1996, Prague and Budapest now rival Bangkok and Manila as hubs for the collection of children to serve visiting pedophiles. Last year, one investigator was stunned to find stacks of child pornography in the reception rooms of Estonia's parliament and its social welfare department. Free love is regarded as one of the new freedoms which the market economy can offer, she wrote. Simultaneously, sex in the market economy has also become a profitable commodity. In some cases, children are kidnapped and held like slaves, says Thomas Katow, a specialist with the Council of Europe. This is happening more and more. It is organized crime. Life conditions for children have deteriorated greatly throughout the ex-communist world. Free summer camps have been closed down. School lunches, once free or low-priced, are now too costly for many pupils. Hungry children constitute a serious school problem. Instead of attending classes, 
children can be found hawking drinks or begging in the streets. Juvenile crime is booming along with juvenile prostitution, while funds for youth rehabilitation services dwindle. We didn't realize what we had. While many Eastern European intellectuals remain fervent champions of the free market paradise, most workers and peasants no longer romanticize capitalism, having felt its unforgiving lash. We didn't realize what we had has become a common refrain. The latest public opinion surveys show that many Russians consider Brezhnev's era and even Stalin's era to have been better than the present-day period, at least as far as economic conditions and personal safety are concerned. A joke circulating in Russia in 1992 went like this. Question. What did capitalism accomplish in one year that communism could not do in 70 years? Answer. Make communism look good. Throughout Eastern Europe and the former USSR, many people grudgingly admitted that conditions were better under communism. Pro-capitalist Angela Stent of Georgetown University allows that most people are worse off than they were under communism. The quality of life has deteriorated with the spread of crime and the disappearance of the social safety net. An East German steelworker is quoted as saying, I do not know if there is a future for me, and I'm not too hopeful. The fact is, I lived better under communism. An elderly Polish woman, reduced to one Red Cross meal a day, I'm not red, but I have to say, life for poor people was better before. Now things are good for businessmen, but not for us poor. One East German woman commented that the West German women's movement was only beginning to fight for what we already had here. We took it for granted because of the socialist system. Now we realize what we lost. Anti-communist dissidents who labored hard to overthrow the GDR were soon voicing their disappointments about German reunification. One noted Lutheran clergyman commented, We fell into the tyranny of money. The way wealth is distributed in this society, capitalist Germany, is something I find very hard to take. Another Lutheran pastor said, We East Germans had no real picture of what life was like in the West. We had no idea how competitive it would be. Unabashed greed and economic power are the levers that move this society. The spiritual values that are essential to human happiness are being lost or made to seem trivial. Everything is buy, earn, sell. Maureen Orth asked the first woman she met in a market if her life had changed in the last two years, and the woman burst into tears. She was 58 years old, had worked 40 years in a potato factory, and now could not afford most of the foods in the market. It's not life. It's just existence, she said. Orth interviewed the chief of a hospital department in Moscow who said, Life was different two years ago. I was a human being. Now he had to chauffeur people around for extra income. What about the new freedoms? Freedom for what, he responded. Freedom to buy a pornographic magazine? In a similar vein, former GDR defense minister Heinz Kessler commented, Sure, I hear about the new freedom that people are enjoying in Eastern Europe, but how do you define freedom? Millions of people in Eastern Europe are now free from employment, free from safe streets, free from health care, free from social security. Do people in the East want the free market? Opinion polls taken in late 1993 in Russia showed only 27% of all respondents 
supported a market economy. By large majorities, people believe that state control over prices and over private business is useful and that the state should provide everyone with a job and never tolerate unemployment. In Poland, 92% wanted to keep the state welfare system and lopsided majorities wanted to retain subsidized housing and foods and return to full employment. Most people here, reports a New York Times Moscow correspondent, June 23, 1996, are suspicious of private property. Wonder what was so bad about a system that supplied health care at low cost from birth to death and hope that prices are once again reined in by the government. One report from Russia describes a bitter electorate, which has found life under a Democrat, meaning Yeltsin, worse than under the now-departed communists. A report from Warsaw refers to the free market economic transformation that most Poles no longer support. People's biggest fears are inflation, unemployment, crime, and pollution. State socialism, the system that did not work, provided everyone with some measure of security. Free market capitalism, the system that works, brought a free-falling economy, financial plunder, deteriorating social conditions, and mass suffering. In reaction, Eastern European voters have been returning communists to office to preside over the ruin and wreckage of broken nations. By 1996, former communists and their allies had won significant victories in Russia, Bulgaria, Poland, Hungary, Lithuania, and Estonia, sometimes emerging as the strongest blocs in their respective parliaments. This was achieved in the face of the same intimidations, police harassments, monetary disadvantages, restrictive ballot access, media shutout, and fraudulent vote counts that confront leftist parties in most democratic capitalist countries. When the first anti-communist upheavals began in Eastern Europe in 1989, there were those on the left who said that if the people in those countries discovered that they didn't like the free market system, they could always return to some variant of socialism. As I argued at the time, this was hardly a realistic view. Capitalism is not just an economic system, but an entire social order. Once it takes hold, it is not voted out of existence by electing socialists or communists. They may occupy office, but the wealth of the nation, the basic property relations, organic law, financial system, and debt structure, along with the national media, police power, and state institutions, have all been fundamentally restructured. The resources needed for social programs and full employment have been pilfered or completely obliterated, as have monetary reserves, markets, and natural resources. A few years of untrammeled free market marauding has left these nations at the point of no foreseeable return. The belief propagated by the free market reformers is that the transition from socialism to capitalism can only be made through a vast private accumulation of capital. The hardship inflicted by such privatization supposedly is only temporary. The truth is, nations get stuck in that temporary stage for centuries. One need only look at Latin America. Like other third world nations, the former communist countries are likely to remain in poverty indefinitely, so that a privileged few may continue to enjoy greater and greater opulence at the expense of the many. To secure that arrangement, 
the corporate class will resort to every known manipulation and repression against democratic resurgence. In these endeavors, they will have the expert assistance of international capital, the CIA, and other agencies of state capitalist domination. According to Noam Chomsky, communism was a monstrosity, and the collapse of tyranny in Eastern Europe and Russia is an occasion for rejoicing for anyone who values freedom and human dignity. I treasure freedom and human dignity, yet find no occasion for rejoicing. The post-communist societies do not represent a net gain for such values. If anything, the breakup of the communist states has brought a colossal victory for global capitalism and imperialism, with its correlative increase in human misery and a historic setback for revolutionary liberation struggles everywhere. There will be harder times ahead, even for modestly reformist nationalist governments, as the fate of Panama and Iraq have indicated. The breakup also means a net loss of global pluralism and a more intensive socioeconomic inequality throughout the world. The peoples of Eastern Europe believed they were going to keep all the social gains they had enjoyed under communism while adding on all the consumerism of the West. Many of their grievances about existing socialism were justified, but their romanticized image of the capital West was not. They had to learn the hard way. Expecting to advance from second world to first world status, they have been rammed down into the third world, ending up like capitalist Indonesia, Mexico, Zaire, and Turkey. They wanted it all, and have been left with almost nothing. Chapter 8 The End of Marxism Some people say Marxism is a science, and others say it is a dogma, a bundle of reductionist unscientific claims. I would suggest that Marxism is not a science in the positivist sense, formulating hypotheses and testing for predictability, but more accurately, a social science, one that shows us how to conceptualize systematically and systemically, moving from surface appearances to deeper, broader features, so better to understand both the specific and the general, and the relationship between the two. Marxism has an explanatory power that is superior to mainstream bourgeois social science because it deals with the imperatives of class power and political economy, the motor forces of society and history. The class basis of political economy is not a subject for which mainstream social science has much understanding or tolerance. In 1915, Lenin wrote that bourgeois science will not even hear of Marxism, declaring that it has been refuted and annihilated. Marx is attacked with equal zest by young scholars who are making a career by refuting socialism and by decrepit elders who are preserving the tradition of all kinds of outworn systems. Over 80 years later, the careerist scholars are still declaring Marxism to have been proven wrong once and for all. As the anti-communist liberal writer Irving Howe put it, the simplistic formulae of textbooks, including the Marxist ones, no longer hold. That is why some of us don't regard ourselves as Marxists. Here I want to argue that Marxism is not outmoded or simplistic, only the image of it entertained by anti-Marxists like how. Some Durable Basics With the overthrow of communist governments in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union, announcements about the moribund nature of Marxist dogma poured forth with renewed vigor. 
but Marx's major work was Kapital, a study not of existing socialism, which actually did not exist in his day, but of capitalism, a subject that remains terribly relevant to our lives. It would make more sense to declare Marxism obsolete if and when capitalism is abolished, rather than socialism. I wish to argue not merely that Marx is still relevant, but that he is more relevant today than he was in the 19th century, that the forces of capitalist motion and development are operating with greater scope than when he first studied them. This is not to say that everything Marx and Engels anticipated has come true. Their work was not a perfect prophecy, but an imperfect, incomplete science, like all sciences, directed toward understanding a capitalism that leaves its bloody footprints upon the world as never before. Some of Marxism's basic postulates are as follows. In order to live, human beings must produce. People cannot live by bread alone, but neither can they live without bread. This does not mean all human activity can be reduced to material motives, but that all activity is linked to a material base. A work of art may have no direct economic motive attached to it, yet its creation would be impossible if there did not exist the material conditions that allowed the artist to create and show the work to interested audiences who have the time for art. What people need for survival is found in nature, but rarely in a form suitable for immediate consumption. Labor, therefore, becomes a primary condition of human existence. But labor is more than a way of providing for survival. It is one of the means whereby people develop their material and cultural life, acquiring knowledge and new modes of social organization. The conflicting class interests that evolve around the productive forces shape the development of a social system. When we speak of early horticultural societies, or of slave or feudal or mercantile or industrial capitalist societies, we are recognizing how the basic economic relations leave a defining stamp on a given social order. Capitalist theorists present capital as a creative, providential force. As they would have it, capital gives shape and opportunity to labor. Capital creates production, jobs, new technologies, and a general prosperity. Marxists turn the equation around. They argue that, of itself, capital cannot produce anything. It is the thing that is produced by labor. Only human labor can create the farm and the factory, the machine and the computer. And in a class society, the wealth so produced by many is accumulated in the hands of relatively few who soon translate their economic power into political and cultural power in order to better secure the exploitative social order that so favors them. The standard trickle-down theory says that the accumulation of wealth at the top eventually brings more prosperity to the rest of us below. A rising tide lifts all boats. I would argue that in a class society, the accumulation of wealth fosters the spread of poverty. The wealthy few live off the backs of the impoverished many. There can be no rich slaveholders living in idle comfort without a mass of penniless slaves to support their luxurious lifestyle. No lords of the manor who live in opulence without a mass of impoverished landless serfs who till the lord's lands from dawn to dusk. So too, under capitalism, there can be no financial moguls and industrial tycoons without millions of underpaid and overworked employees. Exploitation can be measured not only in paltry wages, but in the disparity between the wealth created by the worker and the pay she or he receives. 
Thus, some professional athletes receive dramatically higher salaries than most people, but compared to the enormous wealth they produce for their owners, and taking into account the rigors and relative brevity of their careers, the injuries sustained, and the lack of lifelong benefits, it can be said they are exploited at a far higher rate than most workers. Conservative ideologues defend capitalism as the system that preserves culture, traditional values, the family, and community. Marxists would respond that capitalism has done more to undermine such things than any other system in history. Given its wars, colonizations, and forced migrations, its enclosures, evictions, poverty wages, child labor, homelessness, underemployment, crime, drug infestation, and urban squalor. All over the world, community in the broader sense, the Gemeinschaft, with its organic social relationships and strong reciprocal bonds of commonality and kinship, is forcibly transformed by global capital into commercialized, atomized, mass-market societies. In the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels referred to capitalism's implacable drive to settle over the whole surface of the globe, creating a world after its own image. No system in history has been more relentless in battering down ancient and fragile cultures, pulverizing centuries-old practices in a matter of years, devouring the resources of whole regions, and standardizing the varieties of human experience. Big capital has no commitment to anything but capital accumulation, no loyalty to any nation, culture, or people. It moves inexorably according to its inner imperative to accumulate at the highest possible rate, without concern for human and environmental costs. The first law of the market is to make the largest possible profit from other people's labor. Private profitability rather than human need is the determining condition of private investment. There prevails a rational systematization of human endeavor in pursuit of a socially irrational end. Accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. More right than wrong. Those who reject Marx frequently contend that his predictions about proletariat revolution have proven wrong. From this, they conclude that his analysis of the nature of capitalism and imperialism must also be wrong. But we should distinguish between Marx, the chiliastic thinker, who made grandly optimistic predictions about the flowering of the human condition, and Marx, the economist and social scientist, who provided us with fundamental insights into capitalist society that have held painfully true to the present day. The latter Marx has been regularly misrepresented by anti-Marxist writers. Consider the following predictions. Business Cycles and the Tendency Toward Recession Marx noted that something more than greed is involved in the capitalists' relentless pursuit of profit. Given the pressures of competition and rising wages, capitalists must make technological innovations to increase their productivity and diminish their labor costs. This creates problems of its own. The more capital goods, such as machinery, plants, technologies, fuels, needed for production, the higher the fixed costs and the greater the pressure to increase productivity to maintain profit margins. Since workers are not paid enough to buy back the goods and services they produce, Marx noted, there is always the problem of a disparity between mass production and aggregate demand. If demand slackens, 
owners cut back on production and investment. Even when there is ample demand, they are tempted to downsize the workforce and intensify the rate of exploitation of the remaining employees, seizing any opportunity to reduce benefits and wages. The ensuing drop in the workforce's buying power leads to a further decline in demand and to business recessions that inflict the greatest pain on those with the least assets. Marx foresaw this tendency for profits to fall and for protracted recessions and economic instability. As the economist Robert Heilbronner noted, this was an extraordinary prediction, for in Marx's day, economists did not recognize boom-and-bust business cycles as inherent to the capitalist system. But today we know that recessions are a chronic condition, and as Marx also predicted, they have become international in scope. Capital Concentration When the Communist Manifesto first appeared in 1848, bigness was the exception rather than the norm. Yet Marx predicted that large firms would force out or buy up smaller adversaries and increasingly dominate the business world as capital became more concentrated. This was not the accepted wisdom of that day and must have sounded improbable to those who gave it any attention. But it has come to pass. Indeed, the rate of mergers and takeovers has been higher in the 1980s and 1990s than at any other time in the history of capitalism. Growth of the Proletariat Another of Marx's predictions is that the proletariat, workers who have no tools of their own and must work for wages or salaries, selling their labor to someone else, would become an ever greater percentage of the workforce. In 1820, about 75% of Americans worked for themselves on farms or in small businesses and artisan crafts. By 1940, that number had dropped to 21.6%. Today, less than 10% of the labor force is self-employed. The same shift in the workforce can be observed in the third world. From 1970 to 1980, the number of wage workers in Asia and Africa increased by almost two-thirds, from 72 million to 120 million. The tendency is toward the steady growth of the working class, both industrial and service workers, and, as Marx predicted, this is happening globally, in every land upon which capitalism descends. Proletarian Revolution As capitalism develops, so will the proletariat, Marx predicted. We have seen that to be true. But he went further. With a growing misery and polarization, the masses would eventually rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie and put the means of production under public ownership for the benefit of all. The revolution would come in the more industrialized capitalist countries that had large, developed working classes. What struck Marx about the working class was its level of organization and consciousness. Unlike previously oppressed classes, the proletariat, heavily concentrated in urban areas, seemed capable of an unparalleled level of political development. It would not only rebel against its oppressors as had slaves and serfs, but would create an egalitarian, non-exploitative social order as never before seen in history. In his day, Marx saw an alternative system emerging in the clubs, mutual aid societies, political organizations, and newspapers of a rapidly growing British working class. For the first time, History would be made by the masses in a conscious way, a class for itself. 
sporadic rebellion would be replaced by class-conscious revolution. Instead of burning down the manor, the workers would expropriate it and put it to use for the collective benefit of the common people, the ones who built it in the first place. Certainly Marx's predictions about revolution have not materialized. There has been no successful proletariat revolution in an advanced capitalist society. As the working class developed, so did the capitalist state, whose function has been to protect the capitalist class with its mechanisms of police suppression and its informational and cultural hegemony. Of itself, class struggle does not bring inevitable proletarian victory or even a proletarian uprising. Oppressive social conditions may cry out for revolution, but that does not mean revolution is forthcoming. This point is still not understood by some present-day leftists. In his later years, Marx himself began to entertain doubts about the inevitability of a victorious workers' revolution. So far, the prevailing force has not been revolution, but counter-revolution. The devilish destruction wreaked by capitalist states upon popular struggles at a cost of millions of lives. Marx also underestimated the extent to which the advanced capitalist state could use its wealth and power to create a variety of institutions that retard and distract popular consciousness or blunt discontent through reform programs. Contrary to his expectations, successful revolutions occurred in less developed, largely peasant societies such as Russia, China, Cuba, Vietnam, Though the proletariats in those countries participated, and sometimes as in the case of Russia in 1917, even spearheaded the insurgency. Although Marx's predictions about revolution have not materialized as he envisioned, in recent years there have been impressive instances of working-class militancy in South Korea, South Africa, Argentina, Italy, France, Germany, Great Britain, and dozens of other countries including even the United States. Such mass struggles usually go unreported in the corporate media. In 1984 to 1985, in Great Britain, a bitter, year-long strike resulted in some 10,500 coal miners being arrested, 6,500 injured or battered, and 11 killed. For the British miners locked in that conflict, class struggle was something more than a quaint, obsolete concept. So in other countries. In Nicaragua, a mass uprising brought down the hated Somoza dictatorship. In Brazil in 1980 through 1983, as Peter Worsley observes, the Brazilian working class has played precisely the role assigned to it in 19th century Marxist theory, paralyzing Sao Paulo in a succession of enormous mass strikes that began over bread and butter issues, but which in the end forced the military to make major political concessions, notably the restoration of a measure of authentic party political life. Revolutions are relatively rare occurrences, but popular struggle is a widespread and constant phenomenon. More wealth, more poverty. Marx believed that as wealth becomes more concentrated, poverty will become more widespread and the plight of working people ever more desperate. According to his critics, this prediction has proven wrong. They point out that he wrote during a time of raw industrialism, an era of robber barons and the 14-hour workday. Through persistent struggle, the working class improved its life conditions from the mid-19th to the mid-20th centuries. Today, mainstream spokespersons portray the United States 
as a prosperous middle-class society. Yet one might wonder, during the Reagan-Bush-Clinton era from 1981 to 1996, the share of the national income that went to those who work for a living shrank by over 12%. The share that went to those who live off investments increased almost 35%. Less than 1% of the population owns almost 50% of the nation's wealth. The richest families are hundreds of times wealthier than the average household in the lower 90% of the population. The gap between America's rich and poor is greater than it has been in more than half a century and is getting ever greater. Thus, between 1977 and 1989, the top 1% saw their earnings grow by over 100%, while the three lowest quintiles averaged a 3-10% to 10% drop in real income. The New York Times, June 20, 1996, reported that income disparity in 1995 was wider than it has been since the end of World War II. The average income for the top 20% jumped 44% from 73,754 to 105,945 between 1968 and 1994, while the bottom 20% had a 7% increase from 7,202 to 7,762, or only $560 in constant dollars. But these figures understate the problem. The Times story is based on a Census Bureau study that fails to report the income of the very rich. For years, the reportable upper limit was $300,000 yearly income. In 1994, the Bureau lifted the allowable limit to $1 million. This still leaves out the richest 1%, the hundreds of billionaires and thousands of multimillionaires who make many times more than $1 million a year. The really big money is concentrated in a portion of the population so minuscule as to be judged statistically insignificant. But despite their tiny numbers, the amount of wealth they control is enormous and bespeaks an income disparity a thousand times greater than the spread allowed by the Census Bureau figures. Thus, the difference between a multi-billionaire who might make $100 million in any one year and a janitor who makes $8,000 is not 14 to 1, the usually reported spread between highest and lowest, but over 14,000 to 1. Yet the highest incomes remain unreported and uncounted. In a word, most studies of this sort give us no idea of how rich the very rich really are. The number living below the poverty level in the United States climbed from 24 million in 1977 to over 35 million by 1995 people were falling more deeply into poverty than in earlier times and finding it increasingly difficult to emerge from it. In addition, various diseases related to hunger and poverty have been on the rise. There has been a general downgrading of the workforce. Regular employment is being replaced by contracted labor or temporary help, resulting in lower wages with fewer or no benefits. Many unions have been destroyed or seriously weakened. Protective government regulations are being rolled back or left unenforced, and there has been an increase in speed-ups, injuries, and other workplace abuses. By the 1990s, the growing impoverishment of the middle and working classes, including small independent producers, was becoming evident in various countries. In 20 years, more than half the farmers in industrialized countries, some 22 million, 
were ruined. Meanwhile, as noted in the previous two chapters, free market reforms have brought a dramatic increase in poverty, hunger, crime, and ill health, along with the growth of large fortunes for the very few in the former communist countries. The Third World has endured deepening impoverishment over the last half century. As foreign investment has increased, so has the misery of the common people who are driven from the land. Those who manage to find employment in the cities are forced to labor for subsistence wages. We might recall how enclosure acts of the late 18th century in England fenced off common lands and drove the peasantry into the industrial hellholes of Manchester and London, transforming them into beggars or half-starved factory workers. Enclosure continues throughout the Third World, displacing tens of millions of people. In countries like Argentina, Venezuela, and Peru, per capita income was lower in 1990 than it had been 20 years earlier. In Mexico, workers earned 50% less in 1995 than in 1980. One-third of Latin America's population, some 130 million, live in utter destitution, while tens of millions more barely manage. In Brazil, the purchasing power of the lower-income brackets declined by 50% between 1940 and 1990 and at least half the population suffered varying degrees of malnutrition. In much of Africa, misery and hunger have assumed horrendous proportions. In Zaire, 80% of the people live in absolute penury. In Asia and Africa, more than 40% of the population linger at the starvation level. Marx predicted that an expanding capitalism would bring greater wealth for the few and growing misery for the many. That seems to be what is happening and on a global scale. A Holistic Science Repeatedly dismissed as an obsolete doctrine, Marxism retains a compelling contemporary quality, for it is less a body of fixed dicta and more a method of looking beyond immediate appearances to see the inner qualities and moving forces that shape social relations and much of history itself. As Marx noted, all science would be superfluous if outward appearances and the essence of things directly coincided. Indeed, perhaps the reason so much of modern social science seems superfluous is because it settles for the tedious tracing of outward appearances. To understand capitalism, one first has to strip away the appearances presented by its ideology. Unlike most bourgeois theorists, Marx realized that what capitalism claims to be and what it actually is are two different things. What is unique about capitalism is the systematic expropriation of labor for the sole purpose of accumulation. Capital annexes living labor in order to accumulate more capital. The ultimate purpose of work is not to perform services for consumers or sustain life and society, but to make more and more money for the investor irrespective of the human and environmental costs. An essential point of Marxist analysis is that the social structure and class order prefigure our behavior in many ways. Capitalism moves into every area of work and community, harnessing all of social life to its pursuit of profit. It converts nature, labor, science, art, music, and medicine into commodities and commodities into capital. It transforms land into real estate, folk culture into mass culture, and citizens into debt-ridden workers and consumers. 
Marxists understand that a class society is not just a divided society, but one ruled by class power, with the state playing the crucial role in maintaining the existing class structure. Marxism might be considered a holistic science in that it recognizes the links between various components of the social system. Capitalism is not just an economic system, but a political and cultural one as well, an entire social order. When we study any part of that order, be it the news or entertainment media, criminal justice, Congress, defense spending, overseas military intervention, intelligence agencies, campaign finance, science and technology, education, medical care, taxation, transportation, housing, or whatever, we will understand how the particular part reflects the nature of the whole. Its unique dynamic often buttresses and is shaped by the larger social system, especially the system's overriding need to maintain the prerogatives of the corporate class. In keeping with their system-sustaining function, the major news media present reality as a scatter of events and subjects that ostensibly bear little relation to each other or to a larger set of social relations. Consider a specific phenomenon like racism. Racism is presented as essentially a set of bad attitudes held by racists. There is little analysis of what makes it so functional for a class society. Instead, race and class are treated as mutually exclusive concepts in competition with each other. But those who have an understanding of class power know that as class contradictions deepen and come to the fore, racism becomes not less, but more important as a factor in class conflict. In short, both race and class are likely to be crucial arenas of struggle at the very same time. Marxists further maintain that racism involves not just personal attitude, but institutional structure and systemic power. They point out that racist organizations and sentiments are often propagated by well-financed reactionary forces seeking to divide the working populace against itself, fracturing it into antagonistic ethnic enclaves. Marxists also point out that racism is used as a means of depressing wages by keeping a segment of the labor force vulnerable to super-exploitation. To see racism in the larger context of corporate society is to move from a liberal complaint to a radical analysis. Instead of thinking that racism is an irrational output of a basically rational and benign system, we should see it as a rational output of a basically irrational and unjust system. By rational, I mean purposive and functional in sustaining the system that nurtures it. Lacking a holistic approach to society, conventional social science tends to compartmentalize social experience. So we are asked to ponder whether this or that phenomenon is cultural or economic or psychological, when usually it is a blend of all these things. Thus, an automobile is unmistakably an economic artifact, but it also has a cultural and psychological component, and even an aesthetic dimension. We need a greater sense of how analytically distinct phenomena are often empirically interrelated and may actually gather strength and definition from each other. Marxists do not accept the prevalent view of institutions as just being there, with all the natural innocence of mountains, especially the more articulated formal institutions such as the church, army, police, military, university, media, medicine, and the like, Institutions are heavily shaped by class interests and class power. Far from being neutral and independent bastions, 
The major institutions of society are tied to the big business class. Corporate representatives exercise direct decision-making power through control of governing boards and directorships. Business elites usually control the budgets and the very property of various institutions, a control inscribed into law through corporate charters and enforced by the police powers of the state. Their power extends to the managers picked, the policies set, and the performances of employees. If conventional social science has any one dedication, it is to ignore the linkages between social action and the systemic demands of capitalism, avoiding any view of power in its class dimensions and any view of class as a power relationship. For conventional researchers, power is seen as fragmented and fluid, and class is nothing more than an occupational or income category to be correlated with voting habits, consumer styles, or whatever, and not as a relationship between those who own and those who labor for those who own. In the Marxist view, there can be no such thing as a class as such, a social entity unto itself. There can be no lords without serfs, no masters without slaves, no capitalists without workers. More than just a sociological category, class is a relationship to the means of production and to social and state power. This idea, so fundamental to an understanding of public policy, is avoided by conventional social scientists who prefer to concentrate on everything else but class power realities. It is remarkable, for instance, that some political scientists have studied the presidency and Congress for decades without uttering a word about capitalism, without so much as a sidelong glance at how the imperatives of a capitalist politico-economic order play such a crucial role in prefiguring the political agenda. Social science is cluttered with community power studies that treat communities and issues as isolated autonomous entities. Such investigations are usually limited to the immediate interplay of policy actors, with little said about how issues link up to a larger range of social interests. Conservative ideological preconceptions regularly influence the research strategies of most social scientists and policy analysts. In political science, for instance, 1. The relationships between industrial capitalist nations and third world nations are described as a. dependency and interdependency and as fostering a mutually beneficial development rather than b an imperialism that exploits the land, labor, and resources of weaker nations for the benefit of the favored classes in both the industrial and less developed worlds. 2. The United States and other democratic capitalist societies are said to be held together by a. common values that reflect the common interest, not by b. class power and domination. 3. The fragmentation of power in the political process is supposedly indicative of a. a fluidity and democratization of interest group pluralism rather than b. the pocketing and structuring of power in unaccountable and undemocratic ways. 4. The mass propagation of conventional political beliefs is described as a. political socialization and education for citizenship and is treated as a desirable civic process rather than b an indoctrination that distorts the information flow and warps the public's critical perceptions. In each of these instances, mainstream academics offer version A, not as a research finding, but as an a priori assumption 
that requires no critical analysis upon which research is then predicated. At the same time, they disregard the evidence and research that supports version B. By ignoring the dominant class conditions that exercise such an influence over social behavior, conventional social science can settle on surface factualness, trying to explain immediate actions in exclusively immediate terms. Such an approach places a high priority on epiphenomenal and idiosyncratic explanations, the peculiarities of specific personalities and situations. What is habitually overlooked in such research and in our news reports, our daily observations, and sometimes even our political struggles, is the way seemingly remote forces may prefigure our experiences. Learning to Ask Why When we think without Marx's perspective, that is, without considering class interests and class power, we seldom ask why certain things happen. Many things are reported in the news, but few are explained. Little is said about how the social order is organized and whose interests prevail. Devoid of a framework that explains why things happen, we are left to see the world as do mainstream media pundits, as a flow of events, a scatter of particular developments and personalities unrelated to a larger set of social relations, propelled by happenstance, circumstance, confused intentions, and individual ambition, never by powerful class interests, and yet producing effects that serve such interests with impressive regularity. Thus we fail to associate social problems with the socioeconomic forces that create them, and we learn to truncate our own critical thinking. Imagine if we attempted something different. For example, if we tried to explain that wealth and poverty exist together, not in accidental juxtaposition, but because wealth causes poverty, an inevitable outcome of economic exploitation both at home and abroad. How could such an analysis gain any exposure in the capitalist media or in mainstream political life? Suppose we started with a particular story about how child labor in Indonesia is contracted by multinational corporations at near-starvation wage levels. This information probably would not be carried in right-wing publications, but in 1996 it did appear, after decades of effort by some activists, in the centrist mainstream press. What if we then crossed a line and said that these exploitative employer-employee relations were backed by the full might of the Indonesian military government? Fewer media would carry this story, but it still might get mentioned in an inside page of the New York Times or Washington Post. Then suppose we crossed another line and said that these repressive arrangements would not prevail were it not for generous military aid from the United States, and that for almost 30 years the homicidal Indonesian military has been financed, armed, advised, and trained by the U.S. national security state. Such a story would be even more unlikely to appear in the liberal press, but it is still issue-specific and safely without an overall class analysis, so it might well make its way into left-liberal opinion publications like The Nation and The Progressive. Now suppose we pointed out that the conditions found in Indonesia, the heartless economic exploitation, brutal military repression, and lavish U.S. support, exist in scores of other countries. Suppose we then crossed that most serious line of all, and instead of just deploring this fact, we also asked why 
successive U.S. administrations involve themselves in such unsavory pursuits throughout the world? And what if then we tried to explain that the whole phenomenon is consistent with the U.S. dedication to making the world safe for the free market and the giant multinational corporations, and that the intended goals are a. to maximize opportunities to accumulate wealth by depressing the wage levels of workers throughout the world and preventing them from organizing on behalf of their own interests, and b. to protect the overall global system of free market capital accumulation. Then, what if, from all this, we concluded that U.S. foreign policy is neither timid, as the conservatives say, nor foolish, as the liberals say, but is remarkably successful in rolling back just about all governments and social movements that attempt to serve popular needs rather than private corporate greed? Such an analysis, hurriedly sketched here, would take some effort to lay out and would amount to a Marxist critique, a correct critique of capitalist imperialism. Though Marxists are not the only ones that might arrive at it, it almost certainly would not be published anywhere except in a Marxist publication. We cross too many lines. Because we tried to explain the particular situation, child labor, in terms of a larger set of social relations, corporate class power, our presentation would be rejected out of hand as ideological. The perceptual taboos imposed by the dominant powers teach people to avoid thinking critically about such powers. In contrast, Marxism gets us into the habit of asking why, of seeing the linkage between political events and class power. A common method of devaluing Marxism is to misrepresent what it actually says and then attack the misrepresentation. This happens easily enough since most of the anti-Marxist critics and their audiences have only a passing familiarity with Marxist literature and rely instead on their own caricatured notions. Thus, the Roman Catholic Pastoral Letter on Marxist Communism rejects the claim that structural, read class, revolution can entirely cure a disease that is man himself, nor can it provide the solution of all human suffering. But who makes such a claim? There's no denying that revolution does not entirely cure all human suffering. But why is that assertion used as a refutation of Marxism? Most Marxists are neither chiliastic nor utopian. They dream not of a perfect society, but of a better, more just life. They make no claim to eliminating all suffering and recognize that even in the best of societies, there are the inevitable assaults of misfortune, mortality, and other vulnerabilities of life. And certainly in any society, there are some people who, for whatever reason, are given to wrongful deeds and self-serving corruptions. The highly imperfect nature of human beings should make us all the more determined not to see power and wealth accumulating in the hands of an unaccountable few, which is the central dedication of capitalism. Capitalism and its various institutions affect the most personal dimensions of everyday life in ways not readily evident. A Marxist approach helps us to see connections to which we were previously blind to relate effects to causes and to replace the arbitrary and the mysterious with the regular and the necessary. A Marxist perspective helps us to see injustice as rooted in systemic causes that go beyond individual choice and to view crucial developments not as neutral happenings but as the intended consequences of class power and interest. 
Marxism also shows how even unintended consequences can be utilized by those with superior resources to service their interests. Is Marx still relevant today? Only if you want to know why the media distort the news in a mostly mainstream direction, why more and more people at home and abroad face economic adversity, while money continues to accumulate in the hands of relatively few, why there is so much private wealth and public poverty in this country and elsewhere, why U.S. forces find it necessary to intervene in so many regions of the world, why a rich and productive economy offers chronic recessions, underemployment, and neglect of social needs, and why many political officeholders are unwilling or unable to serve the public interest. Some Marxist theorists have so ascended into the numbing attitudes of abstract cogitation that they seldom touch political realities here on earth. They spend their time talking to each other in self-referential code, a scholastic ritual that Doug Dowd described as how many Marxists can dance on the head of a surplus value. Fortunately, there are others who not only tell us about Marxist theory, but demonstrate its utility by applying it to political actualities. They know how to draw connections between immediate experience and the larger structural forces that shape that experience. They cross the forbidden line and talk about class power. This is why, for all the misrepresentation and suppression, Marxist scholarship survives. While not having all the answers, it does have a superior explanatory power, telling us something about reality that bourgeois scholarship refuses to do. Marxism offers the kind of subversive truths that cause fear and trembling among the high and mighty, those who live atop a mountain of lies. Chapter 9 Anything But Class Avoiding the C-Word Class is a concept that is strenuously avoided by both mainstream writers and many on the left. When certain words are eliminated from public discourse, so are certain thoughts. Dissident ideas become all the more difficult to express when there are no words to express them. Class is usually dismissed as an outworn Marxist notion with no relevance to contemporary society. It is a five-letter word that is treated like a dirty four-letter one. With the C word out of the way, it is then easy to dispose of other politically unacceptable concepts such as class privilege, class power, class exploitation, class interest, and class struggle. These two are judged no longer relevant, if ever they were, in a society that supposedly consists of the fluid, pluralistic interplay of diverse groups. The Class Denial of Class Those who occupy the higher circles of wealth and power are keenly aware of their own interests. While they sometimes seriously differ among themselves on specific issues, they exhibit an impressive cohesion when it comes to protecting the existing class system of corporate power, property, privilege, and profit. At the same time, they are careful to discourage public awareness of the class power they wield. They avoid the C-word, especially when used in reference to themselves as in owning class, upper class, or moneyed class, and they like at least when the politically active elements of the owning class are called the ruling class. The ruling class in this country has labored long to leave the impression that it does not exist, does not own the lion's share of just about everything, and does not exercise a vastly disproportionate influence over the affairs of the nation. 
Such precautions are themselves symptomatic of an acute awareness of class interests. Yet ruling class members are far from invisible. They command positions in the corporate world, their control of international finance and industry, their ownership of the major media, and their influence over state power and the political process are all matters of public record, to some limited degree. While it would seem a simple matter to apply the C-word to those who occupy the highest reaches of the C-world, the dominant class ideology dismisses any such application as a lapse into conspiracy theory. The C-word is also taboo when applied to the millions who do the work of society for what are usually niggardly wages, the working class, a term that is dismissed as Marxist jargon. And it is verboten to refer to the exploiting and exploited classes, for then one is talking about the very essence of the capitalist system, the accumulation of corporate wealth at the expense of labor. The C-word is an acceptable term when prefaced with the soothing adjective middle. Every politician, publicist, and pundit will rhapsodize about the middle class, the object of their heartfelt concern. The much-admired and much-pitied middle class is supposedly inhabited by virtuously self-sufficient people, free from the presumed profligacy of those who inhabit the lower rungs of society. By including almost everyone, Middle class serves as a conveniently amorphous concept that masks the exploitation and inequality of social relations. It is a class label that denies the actuality of class power. The C-word is allowable when applied to one other group, the desperate lot who live on the lowest rung of society, who get the least of everything while being regularly blamed for their own victimization, the underclass. References to the presumed deficiencies of underclass people are acceptable because they reinforce the existing social hierarchy and justify the unjust treatment accorded society's most vulnerable elements. Class reality is obscured by an ideology whose tenets might be summarized and rebutted as follows. Credo. There are no real class divisions in this society. Save for some rich and poor, almost all of us are middle class. Response. Wealth is enormously concentrated in the hands of relatively few in this country, while tens of millions work for poverty-level wages when work is to be had. The gap between rich and poor has always been great and has been growing since the late 1970s. Those in the middle also have been enduring increasing economic injustice and insecurity. Credo Our social institutions and culture are autonomous entities in a pluralistic society, largely free of the influences of wealth and class power. To think otherwise is to entertain conspiracy theories. Response Great concentrations of wealth exercise an influence in all aspects of life, often a dominating one. Our social and cultural institutions are run by boards of directors or trustees or regents drawn largely from interlocking, non-elective, self-selecting corporate elites. They and their faithful hirelings occupy most of the command positions of the executive state and other policy-making bodies, and manifest a keen awareness of their class interest when shaping domestic and international policies. This includes such policies as the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, designed to circumvent whatever democratic sovereignty exists within nations. Credo The differences between rich and poor are a natural given, not causally linked. 
Individual human behavior, not class, determines human performance and life chances. Existing social arrangements are a natural reflection of largely innate human proclivities. Response All conservative ideologies justify existing inequities as the natural order of things, inevitable outcomes of human nature. If the very rich are naturally so much more capable than the rest of us, why must they be provided with so many artificial privileges under the law, so many bailouts, subsidies, and other special considerations at our expense? Their naturally superior talents include unprincipled and illegal subterfuges such as price-fixing, stock manipulation, insider trading, fraud, tax evasion, the legal enforcement of unfair competition, ecological spoliation, harmful products, and unsafe work conditions. One might expect naturally superior people not to act in such rapacious and venal ways. Differences in talent and capacity as might exist between individuals do not excuse the crimes and injustices that are endemic to the corporate business system. The ABC Theorists Even among persons normally identified as progressive, one finds a reluctance to deal with the reality of capitalist class power. Sometimes the dismissal of the C-word is quite categorical. At a meeting in New York in 1986, I heard the sociologist Stanley Aronowitz comment, When I hear the word class, I just yawn. For Aronowitz, class is a concept of diminishing importance used by those he repeatedly referred to as orthodox Marxists. Another left academic, Ronald Aronson, in a book entitled After Marxism, claims, in the face of all recent evidence, that classes in capitalist societies have become less polarized and class exploitation is not an urgent issue nowadays because labor unions have achieved power to protect their members and affect social policy. This at a time when many unions are being destroyed, workers are being downgraded to the status of contract laborers, and the income gap is wider than in decades. Many who pretend to be on the left are so rapidly anti-Marxist as to seize upon any conceivable notion except class power to explain what is happening in the world. They are the anything-but-class ABC theorists who, while not allied with conservatives on most political issues, do their part in stunting class consciousness. The left, ABC theorists say, we are giving too much attention to class. Who exactly is doing that? Surveying the mainstream academic publications, radical journals, and socialist scholars' conferences, one is hard put to find much class analysis of any kind. Far from giving too much attention to class power, most U.S. writers and commentators have yet to discover the subject. While pummeling a rather minuscule Marxist left, the ABC theorists would have us think they are doing courageous battle against hordes of Marxists who dominate intellectual discourse in this country, yet another hallucination they hold in common with conservatives. In their endless search for conceptual schema that might mute Marxism's class analysis, left ABC theorists have twaddled for years over a false dichotomization between early Marx, culturalistic, humanistic, good, and later Marx, dogmatic, economistic, bad. As Marxist scholar Bertel Ullman notes, this artificial counterpoising transforms a relatively minor development in Marx's work into a chasm between two ways of thinking that have little in common. 
Some ABC theorists labored hard to promote the writings of the late Italian Communist Party leader Antonio Gramsci as a source of cultural theory to counteract a Marxist class analysis. Refer to, for instance, publications like Paul Picconi's Telos during the 1970s and early 1980s. Gramsci, they said, rejected the economistic views of Marx and Lenin and did not treat class conflict as a central concept, preferring to develop a more nuanced analysis based on cultural hegemony. So Gramsci was made into the Marxist who's safe to bring home to mother, as the historian T.J. Jackson put it, and as Christopher Phelps added, Gramsci has become safe, tame, denatured, a wisp of his revolutionary self. Academics seeking to justify their retreat into highly abstruse theories have created fanciful illusions about their counter-hegemonic activity. They have created a mythical Gramsci who holds views he never did, including an opposition to revolutionary socialist organization of the sort that he, following upon Lenin, held indispensable. Gramsci himself would have considered the representations made about him by ABC theorists as oddly misplaced. He never treated culture and class as mutually exclusive terms, but saw cultural hegemony as a vital instrument of the ruling class. Furthermore, he occupied a prominent position of responsibility in the Italian Communist Party and considered himself firmly within the Marxist-Leninist camp. To the extent that class is accorded any attention in academic social science, pop sociology, and media commentary, it is as a kind of demographic trait or occupational status. So sociologists refer to upper middle, lower middle, and the like. Reduced to a demographic trait, one's class affiliation certainly can seem to have relatively low political salience. Society itself becomes little more than a pluralistic configuration of status groups. Class is not a taboo subject if divorced from capitalism's exploitative accumulation process. Both mainstream social scientists and left ABC theorists fail to consider the dynamic interrelationship that gives classes their significance. In contrast, Marxists treat class as the key concept in an entire social order known as capitalism, or feudalism, or slavery, centering around the ownership of the means of production, factories, mines, oil wells, agribusinesses, media conglomerates, and the like, and the need, if one lacks ownership, to sell one's labor on terms that are highly favorable to the employer. Class gets its significance from the process of surplus extraction. The relationship between worker and owner is essentially an exploitative one, involving the constant transfer of wealth from those who labor but do not own to those who own but do not labor. This is how some people get richer and richer without working or with doing only a fraction of the work that enriches them, while others toil hard for an entire lifetime, only to end up with little or nothing. Both orthodox social scientists and left ABC theorists treat the diverse social factions within the non-capitalist class as classes unto themselves. So they speak of a blue-collar class, a professional class, and the like. In doing so, they claim to be moving beyond a reductionist, Marxist dualistic model of classes. But what is more reductionist than to ignore the underlying dynamics of economic power and the conflict between capital and labor. What is more misleading than to treat occupational groups as autonomous classes, 
giving attention to every social group in capitalist society except the capitalist class itself, to every social conflict except class conflict. Both conventional and left ABC theorists have difficulty understanding that the creation of a managerial or technocratic social formation constitutes no basic change in the property relations of capitalism, no creation of new classes. Professionals and managers are not an autonomous class as such. Rather, they are mental workers who live much better than most other employees, but who still serve the accumulation process on behalf of corporate owners. Everyday Class Struggle To support their view that class in the Marxist sense is passé, the ABC theorists repeatedly assert that there is not going to be a workers' revolution in the United States in the foreseeable future. I heard this sentiment expressed at three different panels during a Gramsci conference at Amherst, Massachusetts in April 1987. Even if we agree with this prophecy, we might still wonder how it becomes grounds for rejecting class analysis and for concluding that there is no such thing as exploitation of labor by capital and no opposition from people who work for a living. The feminist revolution that was going to transform our entire patriarchal society has thus far not materialized, yet no progressive person takes this to mean that sexism is a chimera or that gender-related struggles are of no great moment. That workers in the United States are not throwing up barricades does not mean class struggle is a myth. In present-day society, such struggle permeates almost all workplace activities. Employers are relentlessly grinding away at workers, and workers are constantly fighting back against employers. Capital's class war is waged with court injunctions, anti-labor laws, police repression, union busting, contract violations, sweatshops, dishonest clocking of time, safety violations, harassment and firing of resistant workers, cutbacks in wages and benefits, raids of pension funds, layoffs, and plant closings. Labor fights back with union organizing, strikes, slowdowns, boycotts, public demonstrations, job actions, coordinated absenteeism, and workplace sabotage. Class has a dynamic that goes beyond its immediate visibility. Whether we are aware of it or not, class realities permeate our society determining much about our capacity to pursue our own interests. Class power is a factor in setting the political agenda, selecting leaders, reporting the news, funding science and education, distributing health care, mistreating the environment, depressing wages, resisting racial and gender equality, marketing entertainment and the arts, propagating religious messages, suppressing dissidents, and defining social reality itself. ABC theorists see the working class as not only incapable of revolution, but as on the way out, declining in significance as a social formation. Anyone who still thinks that class is of primary importance is labeled a diehard Marxist, guilty of economism and reductionism, and unable to keep up with the post-Marxist, post-structuralist, post-industrialist, post-capitalist, post-modernist, and post-deconstructionist times. It is ironic that some left intellectuals should deem class struggle to be largely irrelevant at the very time class power is becoming increasingly transparent, at the very time corporate concentration and profit accumulation is more rapacious than ever, and the tax system has become more regressive and oppressive. The upward transfer of income and wealth has accelerated, 
public sector assets are being privatized, corporate money exercises an increasing control over the political process, people at home and abroad are working harder for less, and throughout the world, poverty is growing at a faster rate than overall population. There are neoconservatives and mainstream centrists who manifest a better awareness of class struggle than the left, ABC theorists. Thus, former managing editor of the New York Times, A.M. Rosenthal, sees the Republican Party's slash-and-burn offensive against social programs as not only a prescription for class struggle, but the beginning of its reality. New York Times, March 21, 1995. Rosenthal goes on to quote Wall Street financier Felix Rohatton, who notes that the big beneficiaries of our economic expansion have been the owners of financial assets in what amounts to a huge transfer of wealth from lower-skilled middle-class American workers to the owners of capital assets and to the new technological aristocracy. Increasingly, working people see themselves as simply temporary assets to be hired or fired to protect the bottom line and create shareholder value. It says little for left ABC intellectuals when they can be outclassed by establishment people like Rosenthal and Rohatton. Seizing upon anything but class, U.S. leftists today have developed an array of identity groups centering around ethnic, gender, cultural, and lifestyle issues. These groups treat their respective grievances as something apart from class struggle and have almost nothing to say about the increasingly harsh politico-economic class injustices perpetrated against us all. Identity groups tend to emphasize their distinctiveness and their separateness from each other, thus fractionalizing the protest movement. To be sure, they have important contributions to make around issues that are particularly salient to them, issues often overlooked by others, but they also should not downplay their common interests nor overlook the common class enemy they face. The forces that impose class injustice and economic exploitation are the same ones that propagate racism, sexism, militarism, ecological devastation, homophobia, xenophobia, and the like. People may not develop a class consciousness, but they still are affected by the power, privileges, and handicaps related to the distribution of wealth and want. These realities are not canceled out by race, gender, or culture. The latter factors operate within an overall class society. The exigencies of class power and exploitation shape the social reality we all live in. Racism and sexism help to create super-exploited categories of workers, minorities and women, and reinforce the notions of inequality that are so functional for a capitalist system. To embrace a class analysis is not to deny the significance of identity issues, but to see how these are linked both to each other and to the overall structure of politico-economic power. An awareness of class relations deepens our understanding of culture, race, gender, and other such things. Wealth and Power In order that a select few might live in great opulence, millions of people work hard for an entire lifetime, never free from financial insecurity and at great cost to the quality of their lives. The complaint is not that the very rich have so much more than everyone else but that their superabundance and endless accumulation comes at the expense of everyone and everything else, including our communities and our environment. Great concentrations of wealth 
give the owning class control not only over the livelihoods of millions, but over civic life itself. Money is the necessary ingredient that gives the rich their immense political influence, their monopoly ownership of mass media, their access to skilled lobbyists and high public office. To those who possess it, great wealth also brings social prestige and cultural dominance, including membership on the governing boards of foundations, universities, museums, research institutions, and professional schools. Likewise, the absence of money is what makes the have-nots and have-littles relatively powerless, depriving them of access to national media and severely limiting their influence over political decision-makers. As the gap between the corporate rich and the rest of us grows, the opportunities for popular rule diminish. There is much discourse on how to balance freedom with security. History offers numerous examples of leaders who, in the name of national security, have been ready to extinguish what precious few liberties people might have won after generations of struggle. Challenges to the privileged social order are treated as a tax upon all social order, a plunge into chaos and anarchy. Repressive measures are declared necessary to safeguard people from the dangers of terrorists, subversives, reds, and other supposed enemies, both foreign and domestic. Again and again, we are asked to choose between freedom and security when in truth there is no security without freedom. In both dictatorships and democracies, the agencies of national security, acting secretively and unaccountably, have regularly violated both our freedom and our security, practicing every known form of repression, corruption, and deceit. Once in control of the state, plutocratic interests can use a regressive taxation system to make the public pay for the agencies of repression that are essential to elite domination. Still, democratic governance can prove troublesome, inciting all sorts of popular demands and imposing restraints on big businesses' enjoyment of a freewheeling market. For this reason, the captains of capitalism and their conservative publicists support both a strong state armed with every intrusive power and a weak government unable to stop corporate abuse or serve the needs of the ordinary populace. Aside from the systemic imperatives that cause capitalism to accumulate without end, we must also reckon with the driving force of class greed. Wealth is an addiction. There is no end to the amount of money one might desire to accumulate. The best security to being rich is to get still richer, piling possession upon possession, giving oneself over to the auri sacra fames, the cursed greed for gold, the desire for more money that can be consumed in a thousand lifetimes of limitless indulgence, wanting in nothing but still more and more money. Wealth buys every comfort and privilege in life, the fame of fortune, elevating the possessor to the highest social stratosphere an expression of the aggrandizing self, an expansion of the ego's boundary, an extension of one's existence beyond the grave, leaving one feeling almost invulnerable to time and mortality. Wealth is pursued without moral restraint. The very rich try to crush anyone who resists their endless, heartless, unprincipled accumulation. Like any addiction, money is pursued in that obsessive, amoral, single-minded way revealing a total disregard for what is right or wrong, just or unjust, an indifference to other considerations and other people's interests, and even one's own interests, should they go beyond feeding the addiction. Capitalism is a rational system, 
the well-calculated systematic maximization of power and profits, a process of accumulation anchored in material obsession that has the ultimately irrational consequence of devouring the system itself and everything else with it. Eco-Apocalypse, a class act. In 1876, Marx's collaborator Friedrich Engels offered a prophetic caveat, Let us not flatter ourselves overmuch on account of our human conquest over nature, for each such conquest takes its revenge on us. At every step we are reminded that we by no means rule over nature like a conqueror over a foreign people, like someone standing outside of nature, but that we, with flesh, blood, and brain, belong to nature and exist in its midst. With its never-ending emphasis on exploitation and expansion, and its indifference to environmental costs, capitalism appears determined to stand outside nature. The essence of capitalism, its raison d'etre, is to convert nature into commodities and commodities into capital, transforming the living earth into inanimate wealth. This capital accumulation process wreaks havoc upon the global ecological system. It treats the planet's life-sustaining resources, arable land, groundwater, wetlands, forests, fisheries, ocean beds, rivers, air quality, as dispensable ingredients of limitless supply, to be consumed or toxified at will. Consequently, the support systems of the entire ecosphere, the planet's thick skin of fresh air, water, and topsoil, are at risk threatened by such things as global warming, massive erosion, and ozone depletion. Global warming is caused by tropical deforestation, motor vehicle exhaust, and other fossil fuel emissions that create a greenhouse effect, trapping heat close to the Earth's surface. This massed heat is altering the atmospheric chemistry and climatic patterns across the planet, causing record droughts, floods, tidal waves, snowstorms, hurricanes, heat waves, and great losses in soil moisture. We now know that the planet does not have a limitless ability to absorb heat caused by energy consumption. Another potential catastrophe is the shrinkage of the ozone layer that shields us from the sun's deadliest rays. Over 2.5 billion pounds of ozone-depleting chemicals are emitted into the Earth's atmosphere every year, resulting in excessive ultraviolet radiation that is causing an alarming rise in skin cancer and other diseases. Increased radiation is damaging trees, crops, and coral reefs, and destroying the ocean's phytoplankton, source of about half of the planet's oxygen. If the oceans die, so do we. At the same time, the rise in pollution and population has given us acid rain, soil erosion, silting of waterways, shrinking grasslands, disappearing water supplies and wetlands, and the obliteration of thousands of species, with hundreds more on the endangered list. In 1970, on what was called Environment Day, President Richard Nixon intoned, What a strange creature is man, that he fouls his own nest. With that utterance, Nixon was helping to propagate the myth that the ecological crisis we face is a matter of irrational individual behavior rather than being of a social magnitude. In truth, the problem is not individual choice, but the system that imposes itself on individuals and prefigures their choice. Behind the ecological crisis is the reality of class interest and power. An ever-expanding capitalism and a fragile, finite ecology are on a calamitous collision course. 
It is not true that the ruling politico-economic interests are in a state of denial about this. Far worse than denial, they are in a state of utter antagonism toward those who think the planet is more important than corporate profits. So they defame environmentalists as eco-terrorists, EPA Gestapo, Earth Day alarmists, tree huggers, and purveyors of green hysteria and liberal claptrap. Some environmental activists in this country have been the object of terrorist assaults conducted by unknown assailants with the implicit tolerance of law enforcement authorities. Autocrats in countries like Nigeria, in bed with the polluting oil companies, have waged brutal war upon environmentalists, going so far as to hang popular leader Ken Sarowiwa. In recent years, conservatives within and without Congress, fueled by corporate lobbyists, have supported measures that would, one, prevent the Environmental Protection Agency from keeping toxic fill out of lakes and harbors, two, eliminate most of the wetland acreage that was to be set aside for a reserve, three, completely deregulate the production of chlorofluorocarbons that deplete the ozone layer, four, virtually eliminate clean water and clean air standards, five, open the unspoiled Arctic wildlife refuge in Alaska to oil and gas drilling, six, defund efforts to keep raw sewage out of rivers and away from beaches, seven, privatize and open national parks to commercial development, eight, give the few remaining ancient forests over to unrestrained logging, and nine, repeal the Endangered Species Act. In sum, their openly professed intent has been to eviscerate all our environmental protections, however inadequate these are. Conservatives maintain that there is no environmental crisis. Technological advances will continue to make life better for more and more people. One might wonder why rich and powerful interests take this seemingly suicidal anti-environmental route. They can destroy welfare, public housing, public education, public transportation, social security, Medicare, and Medicaid with impunity, for they and their children will not thereby be deprived, having more than sufficient means to procure private services for themselves. But the environment is a different story. Wealthy conservatives and their corporate lobbyists inhabit the same polluted planet as everyone else, eat the same chemicalized food, and breathe the same toxified air. In fact, they do not live exactly as everyone else. They experience a different class reality, residing in places where the air is somewhat better than in low- and middle-income areas. They have access to food that is organically raised and specially prepared. The nation's toxic dumps and freeways usually are not situated in or near their swanky neighborhoods. The pesticide sprays are not poured over their trees and gardens. Clear-cutting does not desolate their ranches, estates, and vacation spots. Even when they or their children succumb to a dread disease like cancer, they do not link the tragedy to environmental factors, though scientists now believe that most cancers stem from human-made causes. They deny there is a larger problem because they themselves create that problem and owe much of their wealth to it. But how can they deny the threat of an ecological apocalypse brought on by ozone depletion, global warming, disappearing topsoil, and dying oceans? Do the dominant elites want to see life on Earth, including their own, destroyed? In the long run, they indeed will be victims of their own policies along with everyone else. However, like us all, they live not in the long run, but in the here and now. For the ruling interests, 
What is at stake is something of more immediate and greater concern than global ecology. It is global capital accumulation. The fate of the biosphere is an abstraction compared to the fate of one's own investments. Furthermore, pollution pays while ecology costs. Every dollar a company must spend on environmental protections is one less dollar in earnings. It is more profitable to treat the environment like a septic tank, pouring thousands of new harmful chemicals into the atmosphere each year, dumping raw industrial effluent into the river or bay, turning waterways into open sewers. The long-term benefit of preserving a river that runs alongside a community, where the corporate polluters do not live anyway, does not weigh as heavily as the immediate gain that comes from ecologically costly modes of production. Solar, wind, and tidal energy systems could help avert ecological disaster, but they would bring disaster to the rich oil cartels. Six of the world's ten top industrial corporations are involved primarily in the production of oil, gasoline, and motor vehicles. Fossil fuel pollution means billions in profits. Ecologically sustainable forms of production threaten those profits. Immense and imminent gain for oneself is a far more compelling consideration than a diffuse loss shared by the general public. The cost of turning a forest into a wasteland weighs little against the profits that come from harvesting the timber. The conflict between immediate private gain on the one hand and remote public benefit on the other operates even at the individual consumer level. Thus, it is in one's long-term interest not to operate a motor vehicle which contributes more to environmental devastation than any other single consumer item. But we have an immediate need for transportation in order to get to work or do whatever else needs doing, so most of us have no choice except to own and use automobiles. The car culture demonstrates how the ecological crisis is not primarily an individual matter of man soiling his own nest. In most instances, the choice of using a car is no choice at all. Ecologically efficient and less costly electric car mass transportation has been deliberately destroyed since the 1930s in campaigns waged across the country by the automotive, oil, and tire industries. Corporations involved in transportation put America on wheels in order to maximize consumption costs for the public and profits for themselves, and to hell with the environment or anything else. The enormous interests of giant multinational corporations outweigh doomsayer predictions about an ecological crisis. Sober business heads refuse to get caught up in the hysteria about the environment, preferring to quietly augment their fortunes. Besides, there can always be found a few experts who will go against all the evidence and say that the jury is still out, that there is no conclusive proof to support the alarmists. Conclusive proof in this case would come only when we reach the point of no return. Ecology is profoundly subversive of capitalism. It needs planned, environmentally sustainable production rather than the rapacious, unregulated kind. It requires economical consumption rather than an artificially stimulated, ever-expanding consumerism. It calls for natural, low-cost energy systems rather than profitable, high-cost, polluting ones. Ecology's implications for capitalism are too horrendous for the capitalist to contemplate. Those in the higher circles, who once hired black shirts to destroy democracy out of fear that their class interests were threatened, 
have no trouble doing the same against eco-terrorists. Those who have waged merciless war against the Reds have no trouble making war against the Greens. Those who have brought us poverty wages, exploitation, unemployment, homelessness, urban decay, and other oppressive economic conditions are not too troubled about bringing us ecological crisis. The plutocrats are more wedded to their wealth than to the earth upon which they live, more concerned with the fate of their fortunes than with the fate of the planet. The struggle over environmentalism is part of the class struggle itself, a fact that seems to have escaped many environmentalists. The impending eco-apocalypse is a class act. It has been created by and for the benefit of the few at the expense of the many. The trouble is, this time the class act may take all of us down once and forever. In the relationship between wealth and power, what is at stake is not only economic justice, but democracy itself and the survival of the biosphere. Unfortunately, the struggle for democracy and ecological sanity is not likely to be advanced by trendy, jargonized ABC theorists who treat class as an outmoded concept and who seem ready to consider anything but the realities of capitalist power. In this, they are a little different from the dominant ideology they profess to oppose. They are the ones who need to get back on this planet. The only countervailing force that might eventually turn things in a better direction is an informed and mobilized citizenry. Whatever their shortcomings, the people are our best hope. Indeed, we are they. Whether or not the ruling circle still wear black shirts, and whether or not their opponents are reds, la luta continua. The struggle continues, today, tomorrow, and through all history. This concludes Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti. Narrated by Timothy Andres Pabon. Copyright 1997 by Michael Parenti. This unabridged audiobook is published by arrangement with City Lights Books and was produced in the year 2022 by Tantor Media Incorporated, a division of recorded books which holds the copyright there too. Please visit tantor.com for more information on our growing library of unabridged audiobooks.